The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're looking at the science of invasion and asking whether invasive species are all really as bad as their reputation suggests. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Ken Thompson, a plant biologist with a keen interest in the science of gardening. He writes and lectures extensively and has written six books on gardening and popular science, including Compost, No Nettles Required, and Do We Need Pandas? The Uncomfortable Truth About Biodiversity. His latest book is Where Do Camels Belong? Why Invasive Species Aren't All Bad. Ken, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Okay, so the title of the book right away, where did this title come from? I mean, where do camels belong? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, which is which is why my editor, I have to say, chose that as a title for the book. I had lots of suggestions, but he he said no. I like I like where the camels belong, um, which which is funny because my favorite my favorite Amazon review of the book is is a one star review that just says um, disappointed, expected to hear more about camels. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, actually, there's very little in the book about camels. So that's my first warning. It's if you want a book about camels, there are good books about camels, but this this is probably not one of them. But it is. But it it is. Oh, sorry, an interesting I love question. that. That's great. It is. It is an interesting question. Just it just highlights the point that um, when we talk about invasive alien species, we we don't we tend not to like them, and one of the reasons we don't like them is we think they don't belong. So we have this idea of the world um, being made up of species that are where they should be, where they belong, and where they shouldn't be, where they don't belong. And then if they're where they don't belong, we don't like them. So camels are just an interesting way of getting at the fact that you we don't always know exactly where things do belong. Because if you ask people where the camels belong, what do they say? They say nine times out of 10, they say Egypt or, or the Middle East or somewhere like that, somewhere with pyramids and sand. Um, and in fact, there is a camel that lives there. That's for sure. But there's another camel, of course, that lives, uh, in Central Asia. Um, that's the, the two humped Bactrian camel. But in fact, also there are four species of camels in South America. In fact, of the six, surviving species of camels in the world today two are in asia and four are in south america but that's not where camels evolved camels evolved in north america which is comes as a, as a surprise i find to most north americans um, in fact camels evolved at least 40 million years ago in north america you had lots and lots of species of camels in North America for tens of millions of years. Uh, they wandered all over North America um, and they spread relatively recently across the land bridge into South America and across the Bering region into Asia. And then very recently, um, only in fact about 8,000 years ago, the last native North American camel went extinct. So you've had camels for a very long time, except the very, very recent past. So now where do you, 
where do you think camels belong? And I just, I just should throw in also that if you want to see a wild Middle Eastern camel, a wild dromedary, you now have to go to Australia. It's a really great way to introduce quite quickly the complexities behind invasion biology. Yes, it is. And it, it introduces one of the really fundamental things about invasive species, which I think most people miss, frankly, which is that the world is a constantly changing place and that species don't stand still, uh, that species are evolving and moving around the globe, and they always have been. Um, and we 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 have this very short term view of the world we think the world you know by and large we think the world how it how it is today is how it's always been but that's not true okay so i think we should probably start by maybe um attempting to define our terms uh, so how do we define the ideas or terms of natural versus alien when we're talking about species the consensus here is that it's all about uh human intervention um, if a species is somewhere because humans took it there, then it's an alien, wherever, wherever we took it. That's, that's the, there's no, there's no time scale involved. Um, that's it. It's just, it's just human agency. If you've been moved around by humans, um, you're an alien. So what is so special about human agency? I mean, aren't plants and animal species migrating to new ranges and leaving other territories all the time? Isn't that sort of a natural part of ecosystem change and evolution? Uh, yes, yes. I'm, I'm inclined to throw that question back at people, frankly, and say, well, what is so special about human agency? I mean, why does being moved somewhere by man render you um, undesirable. Um, whereas if you stay where you were, you were fine. That seems, that's, that, the thing about that is that's one of the underlying, what can we call it? Assumptions or axioms of invasion biology. People just, people who work on invasive species take that for granted. They never, they never explain why that's the case. They just, they just start with that assumption. Um, as though it's one of the, those things that, doesn't need explaining. And, and the weird thing about it is that, of course, people, ever since humans evolved, humans have been moving plants and animals around the globe as they themselves migrated. Um, and uh, presumably when, when humans were primitive hunter-gatherers, that was a perfectly natural thing to happen. You know, humans were part of nature at that time. Whereas at some point in the development of civilization, and no one's quite clear, frankly, when this happened, m humans became not part of nature. And now we're not, apparently. Is it this maybe sort of more about our human guilt at how quickly we're impacting our environment? Or, or is it more that humans really don't like change, do you think? Oh, dear. Well, both of those are big things, aren't they? Um, people don't like change. People like the world. People like the world the way it was when they were children. That's my impression. Um, anything that's happened since then is usually seen as a bad thing. Um, and certainly there's, there's guilt involved uh, because most of us know, I think, deep down that we are really messing up the planet in, in all kinds of, 
of fairly horrible ways. And we also know, deep down, that actually doing anything about that is difficult because the very, you know, the very fabric of civilization, the, the, the building of towns and cities and roads and the mining of minerals and the extraction of oil and farming, all these things damage or destroy the natural environment. So I think we have this underlying guilt about our treatment of the natural world. And those are difficult things to do anything about because you, it's, it's very hard without attacking the sort of basis of, of civilization itself. Whereas, of course, alien species represent, in a way, a kind of easy target. They're a, they're a sort of symptom of what we've done to the, to the planet. But we can, we think it's a symptom that we can deal with. Often we can't, but we think we can. The human part of this equation, the more I think about it, the more it kind of flummoxes me because there are invasive species that are kind of a symptom of broader climate change where species have come in because they're more, because uh, the range has changed, because maybe climates have changed. Um, and humans are a big cause of climate change for sure right now, but also in times before humans or in history, that kind of migration happened as climate change happened. Um, or as uh, there were ice ages or ice ages receded and, and that seems perfectly natural. So it, it's, it's like, where is this really fuzzy line between <laughs> true invasion and true alien species versus something that is more natural? It, it's a very, uh, the more you think, the more I thought about it, the more it uh, flummoxed me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, and I'm, I'm not surprised it, it flummoxes you. It, it flummoxes me, frankly. And what flummoxes me is the certainty with which people kind of behave these days as though as though this was all very simple and i think the main reason is they just haven't really thought about it we live we happen to live in a in a short period of an of an interglacial period when the climate appears to be relatively stable um on a on a scale of centuries anyway of course all that's changing now that we are messing with the climate um, as you, as, if, as everyone knows. But in the very recent past, climate was changing extremely rapidly. So only, only eight or 10,000 years ago, as the, as the last, um, glaciation was coming to an end, climate, climate was changing very rapidly. And as a result, animals and plants were moving very rapidly. Um, and you kind of, you kind of have to wonder, if humans, because it's just an accident that human civilizations arisen at this point in the Earth's history, at this very moment, you kind of have to imagine what civilized humans would have thought of the environment if they'd been around eight or 10,000 years ago, because they'd have been living against this background of rapid change. They would have seen all kinds of animals and plants whizzing past, you know, heading north. <laughs> and they would have thought, what would they have thought? Would they have, would they, would they have been, would, I, would we have been different then? Would we have thought that, that all this change was, was normal? Or would we have tried to stop it? <laughs> I, I don't know. But it's an interesting question. 
So uh, can you maybe provide us um, with a couple of examples of an invasive species you feel maybe is a problem versus an invasive species that maybe you think isn't, just so people have some idea of uh, some real world examples of what we're talking about? Um, invasive species that are that are a problem. Um, the the one of the main places where invasive species genuinely are a problem is when uh, predators are introduced to islands, often quite remote islands, which have lacked any experience of of predators in the past. Um, so there are lots of examples of that, but the classic one, which is which is always wheeled out as the classic example of a really nasty invasive species, is the brown tree snake on uh, on Guam in the Pacific, the island of Guam, which of course is famous in American history for being a, a big uh, battle in the uh, in the Second World War. But I think as probably stowing away with the military, the brown tree snake um, arrived on Guam and found a population of, of birds of various species which were quite ill-equipped to deal with a with a very arboreal um, snake, basically, and so it it ate them all, and and the native birds were were more or less wiped out by the brown tree snake. Um, so that's that's an invasive species that is a real problem. And frankly, if it could be, you know, plans are afoot. I think belatedly to to try and get rid of it. And if it could be got rid of, then you could you could put the native birds back because they all survive on other neighboring islands. Um, as for examples of alien species that aren't a problem, um, there are almost too many to choose from, frankly. Um, I mean, I, 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 I deal with some at considerable length in my, in my book. Um, I mean, one that, one that Canadians will be familiar with is purple loose drive. Um, which I think is seen as a seen as a problem in in the northern parts of the United States and also in Canada, um, which simply, well, I, I'm I'm frankly baffled by what people think it's supposed to be doing. I mean, it's routinely listed as one of the worst weeds in the world, uh, and certainly one of the worst in North America. But what it's supposed to do, I'm not quite sure. I mean, people blame it for all kinds of things. But actually, people who've reviewed the scientific evidence on purple loose drive say that there's really no evidence for any of the things it's supposed to do. So uh, uh, that's just that's just that's just plain weird, really. So with the example with purple loose strife, what are some of the things that people think are negative consequences of purple loose strife? Like, why is it considered a pest? Well, people think that it it's a it's a wetland plant, yeah. So it invades marshes and edges of edges of lakes and streams and so on. And people think it crowds out the native flora. Um, that's what that's the main charge against it. But in fact, the problem with purple loose drive is it's just extremely conspicuous. It's it's moderately tall with a big spike of nice red sort of purpley flowers 
And so if you get a reasonable amount of purple loosestrife in a, in a marsh, um, it looks like there's nothing else when it's in flower. But people who've actually gone in there with a, you know, with a quadrat and sat down and looked at what's actually going on find that this is nearly always just an illusion that nearly always, um, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's just as much native flora still in there as there was before. It just, it just isn't obvious. Um, so, and, and the other thing about purple loose drive is it illustrates an interesting phenomenon that's very often found with alien species which is that they become more abundant when they are initially introduced. But then later on, they become less abundant. And so purple loosestrife are spread across North America, essentially from east to west. And where it's been present in North America for the longest time in the east, it's the least problem. There it's clearly not a problem. And it's only where it's still spreading that it looks like a problem. But it, but it, 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 it kind of settles down because what happens to an alien species is eventually native diseases and parasites and competitors sort of catch up with them. And they, they tend to go through this boom and bust process. So when we notice, start to really notice purple loosestrife, it's really at a point where it's kind of upsetting whatever the natural balance is. But it sounds like there's a new normal that's set after a little while. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And and here's the problem, because it, it's this human short termism again, um, because what we do is we notice there appears to be a problem. And we want something done about it. And we want it done now. So if we think there's a problem, we often wade in and try and fix it right now. You know, we never wait and think, well, let's see what happens. We always have this something must be done kind of attitude. And the problem with that is that very often the steps we take to try and control uh, an invasive species actually make it um actually slow down the process of um of the, of the invasive species kind of settling down into into a kind of equilibrium with the native community so so we can actually we can actually prolong the problem by trying to prevent it. We've sort of established what makes a species an alien to some extent, even though there's a lot of gray between an alien versus a, a native species. But what about an invasive species? Because it seems like not all aliens are considered bad or invasive. Who gets to decide or who figures out or what rules govern what species are considered to be invasive? To answer the first point, yes, I mean, the overwhelming majority of species that are moved to new environments never establish at all. I mean, they just never survive. They just don't succeed. Among those that do, the overwhelming majority of those do not cause a problem. They just fit in uh, in the new environment. And after a while, everyone just accepts them as, as, as a normal part of, part of everyday life. But a few do go on to become um, more abundant. So just a few do that, but not, but, but very, very few. 
and they're a, and they're a, they're a very unrepresentative minority too that's the problem but they're the ones that attract all the attention so where is this attention coming from i mean where where are the concerns around invasive species where, where does that concern originate is it from science researchers um government is it environmental groups that are raising the alarm here it's from it's from all of those it's 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 a kind of feedback i think between a whole bunch of different interest groups um that find that find invasive species um kind of interesting um i mean at the root of it is well is this, is this strictly correct well maybe not but certainly speaking as an ecologist um a professional ecologist myself we have a lot to answer for because we tend to inflate the the danger of invasive alien species so we tend to think to describe them as worse than they really are and the main reason for that is that it's simply easier to get money you know ecologists are like all scientists they have difficulty getting money to fund their research and one reason for working on a particular species is if you can convince people that it's a problem and that your research will help you to understand how to control it or to eradicate it that makes it a lot easier to get money to work on it so of course you you, you you're in competition with other people so you want to emphasize that the plant or animal you're interested in is really really bad and so you need to give me money to work on it um and of course once you've done that you then your your research then attracts the attention of of the local media and newspapers and websites and so on and you find yourself having to repeat the same story to them obviously to be consistent so you start saying a species is 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 terrible a really dire threat to 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 something whatever and then newspapers of course have always found that that kind of story sells you know newspapers if newspapers were full of good news no one would buy them yeah you know, people 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 love reading about tales of of doom and disaster and invasive species fit the bill perfectly um so so people then start to read about these species very often very often species they don't know and species they never even met in the in the wild um but they become convinced that they're a problem and once they become once people the general public become convinced there's a problem of course they start expecting their their governments and their conservation agencies to do something about them so there is there is pressure on uh, on the authorities with responsibility for the environment to to try and control them so i think that's that's more or less the sequence of events but it's but it's not linear like that you know it all you have to see it as a kind of circle you know it's it's just it's all going round and round you're listening to Science for the People, and I'll be back with more on invasive species and the book Where Do Camels Belong with author Ken Thompson in just a minute. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, 
check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders, and today we're digging into the science of invasive species with Ken Thompson. Ken is a plant ecologist, lecturer, and author of the book, Where Do Camels Belong? Why Invasive Species Aren't All Bad. So you mentioned that ecologists are, are, I guess, or were part of the problem, and maybe they still are. Um, Is there a, a shift in the way ecologists are thinking about invasive species now? Or is it, are, are you kind of one of the minority voices <laughs> still shouted down by the crowd as far as invasive species go? Um, to an extent, still, yes. But I'd say to a to a lesser extent than in the past. I think the I think the orthodoxy, the orthodox view of, you know, the only good alien species is a dead alien species was pretty much universally held um, 10 or 20 years ago. I mean, I I started out, frankly, because I've done a little bit of actual academic work on alien species. I started out thinking that all ecologists, I think, start out thinking that alien species are bad. Um, but I, I think I've seen a shift in recent years. So it's, uh, it's still a minority, certainly still a minority, but there are ecologists out there now who are, who are starting to say, you know, this is, this has really gone too far. So uh, let's talk a little bit about how we attempt to control invasive species when we decide something is alien and after we've decided that it's invasive, which are two entirely loaded questions. Um, but once we decide that there is a problem and we want to do something about it, how successful have we been at trying to control or limit or in some cases eradicate uh, species we see to be invasive and a problem? Um spectacularly unsuccessful <laughs> yeah basically um we have we uh, collectively you know across the globe humans societies and governments have spent billions and billions of dollars on controlling alien species and most of it in the end has had no effect at all um i mean that's not always true I talked, I talked earlier about predators loose on islands. And there are occasions where predators on islands have been eradicated. And in fact, islands are one of the few places where it's realistic to expect to do that because you have, you know, you have a, you have a defined landmass with sea all around it. So no one can escape and there's a limited pool of the of the alien that, that to, to to be controlled so sometimes that's worked but essentially if a if a successful alien species is loose on a new continent um the the probability of eradicating it is is virtually zero and control of course people say well we don't need to eradicate things we just need to keep them under control but keeping things things under control is is equally problematic in a way because you know what do you what do you mean by keeping under control? Are you gonna are you gonna keep 
pushing water uphill essentially forever you know if a species is is spreading how much effort how much money are you going to spend on keeping it under control and so it's it's it really is it really is a lot of the time a waste of time and and one one thing we sometimes do is we sometimes attempt to introduce yet more alien species to control the original alien species and that's tended to be a bit of a disaster too in the past because sometimes the new alien species that we introduced to do the controlling is even worse than the one we had before. So there are lots of spectacular examples there too, things like the cane toad in Australia um, and, and, and so on. Yeah, didn't we and, bring cats into New Zealand or something to try and control the rat population? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, predators are always a mistake to, to control alien species because predators eat everything you know i mean that's that's part of being a predator so cats cats came i'm not sure that anybody actually introduced cats to new zealand to control rats but maybe they did i mean uh, cats are one of those animals that tend to escape whether you bring them or not frankly <laughs> and i think i think people probably took probably took cats to new zealand for all kinds of purposes but certainly there are feral cats in new zealand now and and they probably do eat some rats um but uh, mostly what they eat, of course, is, is the native birds and reptiles, which are unused to having mammalian predators around. It, the cat example I really kind of like because it's a, a great example of humans bringing a species that we've sort of adopted as important to us basically everywhere humans have, have been. Um, and they really have been termed basically like an, eco an ecological disaster from a really localized environment. They, they do cause a lot of, uh, from a, just a bird standpoint, um, they, they do mm. cause a lot of problems. And yet we are happy to overlook cats because we like cats. Yes. Um, we, yeah, well, there's a, <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of things there. One is that we do overlook aliens that are actually quite problematic as long as we like them. And you have to ask yourself why we like them. Um, I mean, cats are an interesting example because cats actually probably do have a significant value for humans. And, and I mean, not just, not just that we like them, but lots of studies show that cats are actually extremely useful animals for, uh, for all kinds of purposes, for people in, in a sort of, mental health kind of sense for humans you know people who live um people who live alone or are or are you know old or bereaved or find that pet animals like cats and dogs um although both of those can cause problems where they're alien are are really really useful animals to have around so the trouble with a lot of alien species is they have a good side and they have a bad side. And the tendency is to only focus on the bad side. Whereas if you, if you weigh up the, the positive and negative sides of the balance sheet, you sometimes find that species on balance are, are neutral or even frankly beneficial. And, and, and moving on from that, moving on well beyond cats, it's, it's worth pointing out that human civilization itself depends completely on alien species 
there would be no human civilization if we hadn't moved important plants and animals that we that we need to eat to survive around the world so you know where would where would where would you be in uh where would we be where would you be in canada if you hadn't brought wheat from iraq and uh maize uh, corn from 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 central america and uh you know all the all the animals that you eat very few of them none of them really are, are native american animals um you know, there would be no human civilization without alien animals and plants. It's, it's part of what makes your book really interesting is that you do go into a lot of in-depth detail with some specific examples of invasive species that a lot of people consider to be a big problem. Purple loosestrife is one of them. Um, and there are several others that you talk about in the book at length. And uh, how much effort when we're talking about invasive species that we point at and say for sure, you know, there are, there are people saying you are a problem. Ha- have we, have we put effort into trying to figure out or cost out what the actual costs are of these invasive species versus the costs of leaving them be? Um, or, or is it more of a sort of gut reaction that we're moving and saying, we don't like you. We want to get rid of you sort of at all costs and then kind of, uh, overvaluing i don't know it, it mm. seems like a weird um way of of costing out the the cost benefit i don't know what basically what i'm asking is what is the roi <laughs> has anybody yeah. figured out what the roi is on on getting I, rid of or controlling some invasive species uh well people have tried yes but most of it strikes me as a kind of after the event justification uh, for trying to control something which we basically decided we just didn't like. Um, so you come in later and do the and and try and try and big up the the negative side of the balance sheet for this species, so that you make controlling it look like a better idea than it really is. I I think I think fundamentally that's that's what we are engaged in doing. If you if you look at the actual costs that are attributed to alien species across the world. And lots of people have tried to do this. Uh, you find time and time again, that most of those costs are actually not anything the alien species is actually doing, but they are the costs of trying to control it. Now, I know there are people out there, um, people with an economics background who will say, well, that's perfectly justified because that's, that's one way that, that economists measure what something is worth. You know, they measure what they measure is what people are prepared to spend on a particular problem. And they say, well, that's what it's worth to people. And so if we're willing to spend a lot of money on controlling, uh, purple loose dry for, or, or tamarisk or, or you name it, then that must mean that that money is worth spending because people are willing to spend it. Um, my response to that argument is that people's willingness to spend money on controlling a particular species is only an accurate measure of, of, of true cost 
if the people who are choosing to spend the money understand what they're buying with that money. And I think nearly all the time, they actually don't understand. You know, they're, they're just, they're just staggering around in the dark, basically, hoping, hoping that spending this money will do some tangible good. And, and frankly, it, it, it often doesn't. I mean, there are classic examples of this all over the world. Just to, just to choose one at random. Um, South, South Africa has a lot of invasive plants, a lot of plants from other parts of the world, especially Australia, actually, um, are extremely abundant and are also pines from the Northern Hemisphere, lots of alien plants. And they've spent, they've spent years and years and tens of billions of dollars, um, trying to control these alien plants. Um, and the end result is that they actually have more than they started with. So however you look at that, that's been a failure. Um, and people are now saying that actually the main justification for doing that in the first place was just really a job creation scheme for the, for the unemployed. Um, and so in that sense, it's been a success because <laughs> it's employed a lot of people. And, and given them, you know, spending money, but its effect on the alien species has been has been absolutely zero. So uh, I do want to talk a little bit about biodiversity theory and niche theory, um, which a lot of us learn in grade school. So can you maybe give us a, a quick primer on what is niche theory or what it says? Well, ecologists talk a lot about niches, um, and fundamentally, the niche of a species is the is the total um, is 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 its the environment and food and space and everything that it uses and that therefore it needs to survive. Um, and so, I mean, I, I talk a little bit about niches in the book, and I and I make the I make the point about you might have a whole bunch of lizards that live in trees. And the lizards will vary, um, they'll vary in size. So some of the lizards will eat larger insects and some of them will eat smaller insects. And maybe the big lizards will eat, will eat birds' eggs or something like that. And partly linked to size, they'll live in different parts of the tree. So higher up the tree or lower down the tree or out on small branches. Uh, and they may operate at different times of day. You know, some may be more tolerant of high temperatures and work during the heat of the day, and some may work in the evening. So you have all these things which, which, as it were, parcel up the environment into, into little boxes. And there's a species that's adapted to each box, as it were. And a lot of, uh, one branch of invasion biology is about, is about alien species perhaps being more successful if they invade a habitat where their niche, that is their, their, you know, their habitat and food requirements and so on is vacant. In other words, there's a, there's a, there's a gap in the market basically. So have we tested the predictions made by niche theory and, and what are some of the predictions that it makes that I guess intersect with uh, some of the ideas we have about invasive species? Well, it doesn't, it, it doesn't always work terribly well, honestly. Um, 
I mean, for example, the, the classic prediction of niche theory is that two species can't coexist if they're too similar. But attempts to show that that's really true mostly have failed. Um, and one reason for that is perhaps not that the theory is wrong, but that it's just impossible to measure all the different ways in which animals and plants parcel up the environment. And so, you know, even if two species appear to be almost identical and yet they coexist, they might, they might differ in ways that you, you just, you just didn't measure or you couldn't measure. Um, so invasive species, do they occupy vacant niches? Actually, sometimes it looks like they do. And this is, this is the classic predators on islands, for example. It's, you know, I mean, if, if, a, if a remote oceanic island or, or take New Zealand, we talked about New Zealand a moment ago. I mean, the, the mammalian predator niche on New Zealand was just missing. You know, there was just no native species occupying that niche at all because, because New Zealand had no native terrestrial mammals. So when you introduce um, cats, rats, um, stoats, whatever, they, they find, they find there's a niche there for them to occupy, which they, which was, had, had nothing in it. So it's perhaps not surprising under those cases. Uh, but that's that they succeed, but that's slightly unusual in a sense. Most invasions across the world take place between continents. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of alien species in North America, for example, come from Asia. A lot of Asian alien species come from North America. And a lot of species in both come from, come from Europe. And it's less obvious in those cases that there's actually a vacant niche. Um, and therefore niche theory doesn't have all that much to say, I don't think, about the success of the great majority of alien species that most of us will encounter. So are there some alternative theories or maybe a more accurate theory out there that people should know about that doesn't get talked about in grade school? Um, of, concerning the success of, of alien species, there are, there are, there are lots of theories. Um, about why why some alien species succeed and some don't um the the one that the one that's very commonly talked about is that alien species uh leave behind specialist predators and parasites um and so when they when they enter an uh, a new habitat they've left those things behind if they're lucky They've left those things behind in their in their in their native habitat, and that's why they do they do better than native species initially, at least. Um, now, actually, attempts to prove that have have not generally been very successful. So, for every for every study that's found that that's the case, there's at least another and probably several others that have failed to show that that's. That that's the case but it may happen sometimes and it may contribute that may contribute to the fact that some alien species are initially very successful and then quite quickly become much less successful in other words 
because you know they they quite quickly accumulate new predators and new parasites and new diseases in the in the new environment um but there are there are other things one of the one of the um one of the interesting ones which which i think is quite attractive is what's just called propagule pressure which is simply the idea that a lot of invasion success is down to chance um and so as in any game of chance the more like a lottery the more tickets you buy the more likely you are of winning so species which are repeatedly introduced to a new a new continent or a new island or whatever will stand a much better chance of being successful than species which are introduced rarely or only once and often it's not easy to look at that because we don't know how often species introductions were actually attempted but when we when we have the data to look at that that's a very very powerful predictor of invasion success so one of the examples i talk about in um in the book is 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 birds in new zealand where um the the number of actual birds that were introduced either at one go or over a period into new zealand is an almost perfect predictor of whether they succeeded or not so if people introduced lots of individuals on many different occasions success was more or less guaranteed if they introduced only a few individuals just once or twice failure was almost guaranteed with everything else in between we'll be back with ken thompson and more about the science and politics of invasive species ecology after this Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Ken Thompson, plant ecologist and author of the book, Where Do Camels Belong? Why Invasive Species Aren't All Bad. As I was reading this book, it was made really clear to me how much I think I thought I knew about ecology and biodiversity and how it all worked and how much I really did not know it all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it, it was quite eye-opening because I, I feel like this is something, because it's taught in grade school and because we learn it when we're eight, nine, ten years old, you know, we go to our local pond, we look at some, we make some, you know, write some reports on the biodiversity of our, our local parks and, and stuff like that. It feels it's, it's made really accessible and it's made really simple and understandable. Um, and, and we kind of, you know, at least from my perspective, I didn't really do that much on it again um, after that kind of initial burst. And mm. it, it made me feel like I kind of knew what was going on there and that we had a really good handle on how all this worked. And it it turns out that we really, not only do I not really have any idea how it works, <laughs> but generally it seems like we don't always have a great idea of how it works. Because it sounds like a lot of the theories that we had strong feelings about aren't really panning out or we at least we can't find evidence to support them is that is that a fairly accurate 
feeling from me or, or am I, I reading that wrong? <laughs> it, it, it gives me, it gives me enormous pain to have to say this, actually. Speaking as a professional ecologist and someone who edits an ecology journal, um, I have to say that I think we understand ecology and ecosystems a lot less well than we think we do. Um, and one, one evidence of that is, is the way we, we, we fail to appreciate what happens when we change things. We think we know how a system works, but you only really know how it works when you know what will happen when you go in there and take something away or add something or otherwise, you know, disturb things. And when we do that, we're often completely surprised by what happens. I mean, to take going back to invasive species, they're often a symptom of just something else. That's one thing. Um, I mean, take, take a, take an invade, take, take, take an invasive species we have here in the UK. And it's interesting because it's one of yours. It's, it's the gray squirrel. Yeah. Your, yeah. your bog standard gray squirrel. It's, it's almost replaced our native squirrel here in, in, in England. And everyone spent, as far as I could see, everyone spent years trying to figure out exactly how the gray squirrel has managed to replace the, the, the red squirrel. And it's all about the biology of the two squirrels and about diseases that one has, the other doesn't have, all kinds of stuff like that. But actually, it's much simpler than that. What it is, is that, is that we have a really good squirrel predator um, in the in the UK, which, for various reasons, which I won't bore you with, we have almost wiped out. Okay? It's almost extinct. It's now very rare, only in the north of Scotland. And this animal, which is a, a martin, a, a, an arboreal pine martin, is a perfect squirrel predator. And what it really loves to eat is grey squirrels, American grey squirrels. And where the two meet, the grey squirrel just stops dead. And as the, and, and we're encouraging this native predator to expand now because, because we like it. And as it expands, when it meets the grey squirrels, the grey squirrels disappear. So what's happening here is it's nothing to do with squirrels. It's just that we've messed up the environment by, by removing this this predator, which would probably have prevented the grey squirrel invasion completely in the first instance, if we just left it alone. But we didn't know that until nature started to show us that that's what was going on. So uh, my response to, to that example, and just to uh, the realization that I don't know as much as I think I do, <laughs> and also that we don't know as much as we think we do, is this, is this topic uh, maybe too complex for us to really be able to predict? Is there an element of chaos here that means that maybe we will never really be able to understand this fully, uh, to be able to predict or control or manipulate it? in a way that's meaningful? Um, it would, that would be a very depressing view, wouldn't it? But it, but it may well be true. Ecology, it's not like physics. It's extremely contingent. Um, every ecosystem is absolutely permeated by 
links between species um, of one sort or another. And we don't know how strong those links are and how important they are until something happens to mess them up in some way. And when that happens, we're nearly always surprised. So, for example, we're extremely poor at predicting the effect of biological control agents that we introduce to control invasive species. Uh, the classic example, or one of the classic examples, which I quote in the book, is an attempt to control spotted knapweed, which is a European plant that is now commoner than people think it should be in North America. Now, What's what, what are you going to do? Well, we what's happened is people have introduced two flies which lay their eggs in the seed heads of the knapweed and the larvae of the fly eat the knapweed's seeds and reduce its seed production. And these these two these two flies are perfectly good biological control agents. They don't attack any other species. They only lay their eggs in this invasive plant. So you'd think, since they do that, that they'd be having some kind of the right effect. But this is where all these unknown connections start to kick in, because what we find is that the larvae that live in the seed heads of this of this plant are are fav a favourite food of a native deer mouse. So the the deer mouse eats the larvae. At the same time, they eat whole seed heads and end up eating intact seeds of the knapweed, which they then disperse in their dung, spreading the knapweed around even further. On top of that, the deer mouse is also eaten by owls. So sometimes the seeds get into the mouse and then into the owl, and then the owl spreads the seeds large distances to new habitats. And finally, on top of all that, the, the mouse, because it likes these larvae a lot, it eats them a lot and its population size increases. And it then eats the seeds because it quite likes seeds, but it doesn't like knapweed seeds. It eats the seeds of native plants and actually reduces the establishment of native plants from seed because there are more mice eating more seeds. Now, Nearly all those connections were unforeseen. Nearly all that cascade of, of, of events, which has actually meant that we're worse off than we were without the two biological control flies, even though they're doing exactly what we wanted them to do. No one foresaw any of that. Uh, there's, there's, uh, <laughs> depressed. Uh, it's, it is a little depressing. <laughs> so uh, after I have been depressed, I, I am motivated to ask the question, what should we do? Should we continue to try and manipulate the environment and control it and mitigate some of these cases where, where prob like serious problems or what we conceive to be or have decided to be serious problems are caused? Or maybe is it better for us just to take a step back and, and kind of have a no interference policy. Uh, one of the things the book left me with is a sort of, well, wh wh what do we do? Do we do something? Do we do nothing? Um, any thoughts on that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, that well, that that's the big question, isn't it? Um, if I had the perfect answer to that, I I would I would definitely tell you, um, but I'm not sure I do. I think much more often than we do, the correct answer is to do nothing, or to do very little anyway. Um, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, simply, you know, one is that that alien species aren't as big a problem as we think they are, and they will become less of a problem over time. All the species, all the alien species that have been studied for long enough get less of a problem over time. That's that's almost a universal finding. Um, but, of course, human civilization being relatively recent, we don't have these long time series for most species but mostly we find things settle down. Secondly, alien species are often not the problem. They're often just a symptom of another problem, like the, like the grey squirrel is a symptom of the fact that we, we, we almost eliminated its, its predator, for example. There are lots of examples like that. And therefore, you know, attacking the, attacking the symptom of the problem is a, is a waste of time. We really need to Look at the, the underlying problem. You fix the underlying problem, you find the invasive species problem goes away. Um, and also, I think we really need to, to, to really realistically and honestly do our cost effectiveness analysis. So, you know, is trying to control something that we think is a problem is it actually going to cost more than the problem we identified in the first place? And I think very often the answer to that is yes, it probably is. So we should pick our fights with alien species with great care. And if we do that, we'll actually have more money to spend on the few occasions we, we do decide to intervene and we will we will not waste lots of money on on wild goose chases. Ken, thanks so much for being with us today. It's a really interesting book, and it left me thinking for uh, days after I read it. <laughs> That's great. If you want to learn more about Ken Thompson or his book, Where Do Camels Belong? Why Invasive Species Aren't All Bad? We've got links up on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. You can also find us on Patreon, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to the weekly podcast to get the show instantly delivered to your various smart devices as soon as it's available. That's it from us this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with a brand new Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. 
This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Schell.